0: Do you need grace? Tired of feeling judged by Christians? Stay tuned as we look at God, golf, and grace with Dr. Doug Rayburg.
1: Welcome to Church Hurts and The good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery romance. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude towards religion, Well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, but now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bass.
0: God, golf, and grace. I've seen huge cultural shifts in my time, a comment worthy of one who admits to being an old curmudgeon. One of those shifts was in the role and status of clergymen. Growing up, clergy were among the most respected professions in America. A local minister was re- revered in a way, often asked to open public meetings in prayer, provide benedictions at political functions, sought for wisdom in times of crisis, and appreciated for his willingness to visit shut-ins, perform funerals, and preside over weddings. Often his counsel was sought the way professional therapists are today. While historically clergy have been among the most educated people in society for over 2,000 years, they've also been notoriously underpaid, treated at times as the help, tipped a little extra at Christmas or recipients of extra vegetables from the garden. There were other benefits, though, including sometimes uh, a home that they could live in while they served the church or a coveted free golf membership at the local country club or at least an opportunity to play on Mondays when the courses were traditionally closed. Early in my ministry, I discovered these days were gone, which isn't saying I didn't pine away wishing for them. Ministry as a profession was being stained daily by abuses as educational qualifications for ordination were watered down as many independent and congregational churches gave up on grad degrees. Today, we have, as a guest, a man who straddled that generational gap as well as any I've known. Highly respected in his community, he honored his country club for their generosity to him. He used their fair ways to minister to many, and find refreshment for his own soul. So today, let's welcome back to Church Hurts and the Reverend Dr. Doug Rayburg with his new book, God, Golf, and Grace. Welcome, Doug. Hey, John. Good to be with you. Doug, as I read your book, I was struck by how much it felt like the book everyone thinks they have inside of them and it never gets written, and yours did, and it's good what was the catalyst for writing it?
2: Well, you know, the first book I wrote was uh, more in the area of ministry, a design um, in developing leaders. And it was well-received, not only here, but um, nationally. A lot of people are using that. But um, actually, the beginning of this book was a colonoscopy. Um, (laughs) It was uh, this woman uh, doctor said, you know, Doug, I've changed my process since you were in here last time. I'm wanting you to drink that stuff at 6 p.m. and 1 a.m. So I thought, well, I want you in here by 5.30 a.m. So I figured, well, I'm not going to sleep. So there I am in my chair upstairs uh, about 3 in the morning, wide awake, and I got a notepad, and I just started writing, just doodling little stories about golf through my life. I got about 30 titles down, and uh, you know, then it was time to go for the procedure, and I set it aside couple months later, my oldest daughter, who uh, now lives in California for a time, she was overseas, she and my younger daughter uh, were, were together, and we are on our patio with my oldest daughter's fiance, and she said, you know, Dad, I never realized how important golf was in your life. And my younger daughter said, duh. And she said, no, no, listen. She said, um, I never really realized how many relationships you've built, how you've Formed your life and ministry in many respects around golf and uh, meaningful moments and lessons learned. So those words kept resounding uh, or reverberating in my mind. And then they uh, corresponded with a 14 week sabbatical that I got from the church after, uh, well, my last one was 2000. Wrote a book for that. So I went down to Georgia to the coast for a week or so, came back uh, to Pittsburgh for a week or two. and then went to the coast of uh, Maine for a month.
0: I know. I just mean all these nice places you're going to write a book.
2: So (laughs) we go up there and uh, we're there for a day or two. And I start going down to the docks and find out there are five companies with nine different docks. And finally I get to one where it's an independent. uh, And uh, I go and I start, uh, I meet the guys and I said, can I just hang out with you? And after a day, I was working with them. So learned more about lobster, which I love and ate a whole lot of them. And and then after a couple of days on the dock, I thought, you know, I can't just do this. And I actually left my golf clubs at home, a bone to my wife. Uh, funny, I did rent them up there and uh, played a couple of rounds. Uh, but I went out, I uh, took my tablet and uh, it's folio and went out and sat on these gorgeous uh, different beaches uh, out on the rocks. And I'd write, I just write these stories and they began to flow. The problem for me was uh, the tide goes in and out twice a day. So I'd get so engaged, I'd look down at the water level and have to scurry back to the shore. But after I left Maine in that month, I had 60 stories written. So I called my executive assistant and said, Hey, do you think you can line up a typist for me? And she said, No, I'm doing it just like your last book. I delivered to her uh, probably an inch or two of. of uh, legal pad writing. And I went to Arizona, wrote some more. And, and so in four months I had written the draft and then it was another five months to get it all the way to be published. But that was the way it happened kind of the convergence.
0: So here, here it is. Um, Not many people watch this podcast on YouTube, but here's the book you, I made you get out those manuscripts. Do you have them right there. Yeah. Look, look, here's,
2: here's what I use to
0: write. Speaking of an old curmudgeon, you're worse than I am in terms of technology.
2: Yeah, when we, I think it's 370 pages handwritten.
0: Doug, I'm going to take you to uh, one of your illustrations because it reminded me, and it's a fast read uh, book. It really is. It's uh, just story after story. But one of them reminded me of an older clergyman I used to play with, and he would take a lot of mulligans and humorously each time kind of saying, Oh, well, kind of, this is like his right as a pastor to do this. Uh, in, in light of that, tell us what NATO golf is.
2: Yeah. So I'm uh we, I belong to a club up here. John mentioned just a couple of miles from the church. In fact, it's sort of like the Bermuda triangle, my house, the church and the club are all like a, a, a triangle about two and a half miles away from each other. But, I have a friend here who's in ministry. He deals with uh, graduate students, Chinese graduate students who come to the Carnegie Mellon, the University of Pittsburgh. So we had a friend in Florida who he and his wife played golf and they were visiting. And so we said, well, let's go out to Longview and play. So we're, uh, we tee off and she's better than he is, way better than she is. And uh, we play, get to the second hole and uh, he's hitting his second shot and he hits it poorly and he puts down another ball. And then he hits that poorly, puts down another ball. And finally, my friend who works with Chinese students, who's a bit taciturn, you know, doesn't say much. He looks at him and said, what are you doing? And the guy said, well, we play NATO golf. And he said, what's NATO golf? He said, not attached to outcome. Now, what's fascinating is his wife was attached to outcome because she counted all her strokes, but he didn't. And I thought as I wrote this book, that was the part of the introduction. I thought about the way in which I was introduced to golf by my dad when I was 11 years old. And, you know, he was never very good, but he never played alone. He always played. I never knew him to practice uh, alone. He never had putting uh, lessons, you know, by himself in the in the living room. He was It was always relational. And that's how we started. He had a friend who had a son about my age and we started to play. And so in that first introductory couple of chapters I talk about the fact that my dad introduced me to NATO golf as well he he wasn't attached to the outcome of (laughs) shots hit or scores gained rather it was relationships it was all about relationships even though he wasn't a tremendously verbal guy he wasn't tremendously uh, gregarious he nevertheless introduced me to that relational dynamic and it served me well over the years even unintentionally you know here I am 50 years into golf, and I reflect back and think of all of the amazing relationships and the connections made that affected not only my life, but literally thousands of lives. And I can tell you some of that.
0: But I want to get into some controversial stuff, which is interesting in light of this book. But before I do, um, let me just mention, I like every show to to mention that I work for Standing Stone the ministry that works with clergy and full-time Christian workers. And Doug has been a real encouragement to that. Those of you who don't know about it, I'd encourage you to go to churchhurtsand.org. I am fully supported in the work that I do um, by the voluntary contributions of our support team and just would love for you to be part of it. We live in a time we're talking about golf and it sounds nice here with Doug. Reality is in this time post-pandemic, some churches and some pastors are really hurt, hurting and struggling. And so I'd encourage you to do that, uh, churchhurtsand.org. And why I say that, um, I'd encourage you as well to go back and look at the show we had called Two Things I Hate, kind of a weird title for a show. But our guest was Vodi Bachum, and I've seen him recently on a number of national news uh, podcasts uh, dealing with uh, uh, the controversial issues of race and Just the stuff you're seeing in the news. So check out Vodi Bach. I'm a great spokesman, and uh, we had a great time here. While you there, hit the subscribe button. Having said that, Doug, that um, about race, you get some issues like about race in there, and you really, as a minister, you try not to be one of those political types. But you, you and I have both kind of taken a stance on that issue all of our lives. But to tell us that there was a good one in the book, can you tell us about that? Well, there's a couple ones
2: that refer to it, you know. When I was in my graduate years, graduate school years in Washington, D.C., in public administration, economics, and policy, I would go out to Congressional Country Club and and I worked out there. I was a caddy and worked in the bag room. And they kept trying to the pro kept trying to get me to work as his assistant in the pro shop. And I said, no, I want to be where the action is. I didn't really like the bag room so much, even though it was lucrative. Uh, wiping people's clubs off and all, but I wanted to caddy. And so there were about three uh, three or four uh, Caucasian caddies, and I was one of them. And all of us tended to be young. And so I went out there the first day and met the caddy master, Jocko. And uh, he talked about, he asked where I was from. I said, I was really originally from Pittsburgh. He's, oh, Arnie land. And we started talking. And so over time, you know, I got uh, accepted by the other caddies. And because I was there a fair amount and uh, in the caddy shack, and there's lots of stories there. But there was one old uh, caddy. He was really ancient, in my opinion, as a 20 something year old. Uh, he was uh, in his early 70s. And he was a real diminutive fella, about uh, less than five feet tall. His name was Benny. He had a real raspy voice like that. And he was a bit of a, you know, kind of a, um, a guy that everybody loved. And he came over to us one day and said, you white boys, you white boys need to recognize something. He said, uh, if you've got two on your shoulder, that's is you're carrying these two big, heavy Burton bags with lead bottoms and then two on the cot. That means you've got their putters and you're going to service them at the green. And they're expecting you to rake them fairway traps. You got hell on your hands. And uh, I'll never forget that as a life lesson because even though I'm not caddying anymore, except for myself, I think that that really applies to so many circumstances. Not long after that, there was a caddy named Eddie who was at the club, and he, he caddied for a living there. And uh, he did very well. He's a good caddy, and nobody disliked him. There was a guy who married, divorced his wife and married sort of a trophy bride. And so Sunday afternoon, Jocko said to Eddie, he's requesting you to go out with him. He goes out with them, and uh, and he's asked to read every putt, even by the, the the woman. And so they come in, and all of a sudden, and I wasn't there at the time. Uh, what happened was um, he reported that the caddy Eddie was looking up his wife's skirt, which was ridiculous. Uh, but nevertheless, there was no deliberation. There was no, he was simply uh, expelled from the club forever. I don't know what happened to Eddie. I don't know where he went. But that was a perfect example of uh, of who, you know, power and authority and someone who was simply a pawn. What's also interesting, and I tell that story of expulsion, not only is there Eddie who gets a raw deal, but there was a federal judge who everybody disliked. And he played in the high roller game every Saturday morning. They played for like ten thousand dollar Nassau, which means the team, the guy that lost. The front nine could lose 10. If he lost the back nine, he didn't lose another 10. If he lost everything, he'd lose 30. And so he has a putt to to win the hole and win the match on what was the 17th green now, which is a peninsula green at, at the uh, at congressional where they've had U.S. opens. And uh, I'm up in the fairway with another group, and I'm watching. He's over his putt, and all of a sudden I see him uh, miss the putt, Take his putter and go back and kill the Canada goose that had just honked when he brought his putter blade back. He takes oh. the Canada goose that he killed, put it on the cart, drove out, expecting that nobody would say anything. But because everybody hated him, the result of that was he was disbarred, he lost his his country club membership, and he was he was shamed. Now I juxtaposition those two examples because here's a guy of white, high privilege that Probably in some respects deserved what he got, and Eddie, who didn't deserve what he got, that's a perfect example of, of what so often happens in our culture.
0: The book is titled "God, Golf, and Grace," and and you you talk about you we learn something in the book about all three of those things. I really do. So if people are into golf, you learn a lot about the golf courses and details and just some fun fun stories regarding their But I reflected on the fact that a lot of the golf stories is really, I think about showing up and I'm reminded of the, what happened in my life when, when my son was paralyzed, this huge watershed in my life. And um, we had a golf tournament here in California and you were in Pittsburgh. And I thought, you know, we didn't put that in the book because you flew from Pittsburgh to California but I thought, you know what, because that wasn't really a golf story, was it? It, it was about showing up, um, not even to play golf, but to be there with somebody. And a lot of your stories were about guys you played with who it was just showing up and getting time together, wasn't it?
2: Absolutely. You know, I was in Puerto Rico once and played the Trump International course there, and they had a tagline. It's on the back of the book. And on that the tagline is not how you play, it's where you play. And I thought how arrogant that is. I would simply amend it. It's not how you play or where you play, but who you play with, the relationship. And you know, I've got a friend I mentioned some uh, Kevin in the book. You know, he's so classic. It seems like there's there's a continuum between people that die on every shot and they want to reprise the shot that they hit, whether good or bad. If it's bad, they'll take longer. You know, explain why they missed it. This Kevin, you know, he'll tee a ball up and hit it in the woods, and he'll say. That's unfortunate. Put another one down. You got to kind of love that because for him, for me, it's all about the relationships. And clearly there are people on the golf course that speak more than others. And But everybody's subject that they love, every single person's favorite subject is themselves. And when you like people and you want to know about them, it's just a window into not only their their work life or their marital life or what they're struggling with. It's, it's a window into their soul. And I've seen that so often. So many times, you know, once the round ends, the round doesn't end because you go and you hang out and you talk and so many wonderful connections. There's something about being on a course that's not lined with condos and it's, it's out somewhere like the course I belong to. You know, you don't see any houses, incredible vistas. You get people on the grass, and they're hitting, and it's almost as if all the cares vanish, all the barriers are broken down, and uh, people really begin to talk. I got a great story about that that didn't make the book. There's a guy at the uh, club I belong to who knows me as reverend. Most people do, which I hate, but it is what it is. They get to know me, and they recognize it's more than reverend. He didn't really talk to me much, and we never had a top opportunity. So a year ago or so, we played an event. We're sitting around having dinner and drinks afterwards with probably 100 other guys. And he turns to me and says, you know something, Reverend? This is my religion. And I said, said, really? He's a retired surgeon. This is your religion? He said, yep, this is my religion. And I just smiled and said, well, Bob, I'm glad you brought me into your sanctuary today. That's all I said. And you know what? He never ceases to go out of his way to say hi to me and call me by name, developing a relationship. And uh, that's that can happen anywhere, but it, it's so easy to happen on a golf course.
0: I was reflecting upon how many places in life do we get together with people and spend three, four hours? Unless you're you know, an alcoholic of, you know, a former profession of mine, um, or you go into a bar and hang out all day long or spend three, four hours where else in our regular lifestyle do, do we spend three, four hours like you do on a golf course?
2: Right. There's not many. And the great thing about it is there's, there are these breaks, you know, you're hitting shots, there's things you're doing. So it's not just a constant looking each other in the eye, which can get creepy. Uh, Sometimes you can go for a long period of time and nothing of substance, and then it happens. You know, not long ago, even last a couple of weeks ago, I was playing with a couple of guys, and this guy's been dealing with the whole concept of uh, God's grace in his life. In fact, he's in the last chapter. His name's Fred, and he was talking about, you know, grace and whether he's sort of uh, glorying in his old, his old life and, and sin. And so, and so, you know, we started talking on 17T, nobody was behind us. We probably talked for five minutes and then we hit shots. Then he sends an email to the guy, all of us that are with him. And, and so we're going to get together again and continue that conversation. But that doesn't happen in many other places.
0: We're going to have to go soon, but I want, I want to get a, kind of your favorite story out of the book. Um, maybe your can tie it into what your desired result from writing this because you connect, you get healing in here. I mean, you've, you've seen healing as a result of golf. Maybe you can end with that.
2: Well, there's so many to pick from, but I'll tell you one that uh, sticks out in my mind. Uh, I have a friend named Terry and we've traveled really all over. We go to Florida every year in the winter time to play golf. And, and as a result of the relationship with him and the relationships we've made, we've been able to get a ministry started and it's burgeoning with all kinds of finances. We were actually a meeting yesterday with two former corporate titans, and they're basically saying whatever you need, we'll give you, and so all of that. So, a couple of years ago, there's a guy here whose brother stole his business from him. It. it was a big landscaping business. I'm multi-million dollar. He stole it from him, and that's a story in itself. But anyway, he finds he tells me the story years before. And then with tears in his eyes, he said, You know, Steve has stage four cancer and he's in Florida and I, I'd like you to pray for him. I said, Well, I'll do more than that. Isn't he down there in Fort Myers? And he said, Yeah. I said, Well, that's where Terry and I are going next week. We'll not only pray for him, we'll go see him if you want us to. So he said, well, I'd love you and I'll, I'll call. And so Steve wanted to see us. And so we get on the plane and I said to Terry halfway down, I said, Probably over Atlanta. I said, We've got a mission from God. I said what's, he said, what's that? And I tell him, we got to go see Steve, this guy's brother. So we're into playing golf a couple days. He said, hey, we got to go see Steve. That's yeah, so what we called. We go there. And to make a very long story short, we are sitting at his dining room table with this guy's stage four cancer. And he starts crying. Terry's on one side of the table. I'm the mm-hmm. other. He's at the end. And he said, I don't think God could ever forgive me for what I've done. And I said, Terry, why don't you tell him if that's true or not? And so Terry went through his story of brokenness and, and, and carnage. His dad committed suicide, and he had to clean up after it, and all of this. And Terry got to the gospel, which is it's not based on our goodness or our performance because none of us are good. We can't. It's not the approval of others. What matters is what Jesus did. And I can tell you, Terry said, as I sit here, if he can forgive me, he can forgive you. And so then Steve said, "Will you can we pray together?" And so we had that time. And, and Steve, for the first time, acknowledged Christ as his Lord, and within a month he, uh, he died and went and saw him. That's a cool story, and there's so many others.
0: Well, Doug, I want to thank you as a friend for many, many decades. I, I relate to that story because I figure if God can give, forgive you, he can forgive me.
2: <laughs> Amen. Amen, brother.
0: <laughs> uh, seriously. How many hours
2: we spent on those courses in Key Biscayne and other places.
0: We've done the phone as well. And uh, just thank you, thank you. Uh, this concludes Season 2 of Church Hurts Anne. And if you haven't discovered yet how to use your podcast app very well, I encourage you to click around and you'll find a button which takes you to a list of our shows. and. And good excuse to binge listen to some old ones you might have missed. We start out the first two we had. We we're actually in the studio, and they're a wonderful uh, way to listen. Uh, we've had a lot of fun as we've traveled some important and challenging roads together. Our episodes have ended with the tagline I use for sermons through the, the 25 years I was in the pulpit, It's Worth a Thought. When one says something enough, it might fall on deaf ears due to repetition or loss of the original meaning intended. In my case, it's worth a thought as there is a reminder to ask myself if indeed the content preceding the closing was worth a thought, or was it just an empty-headed menagerie of words. Consider some of our travels. We've gone to Romania, India, London, Zambia, We've talked about architecture, sex abuse, golf more than once, paralysis more than once, parents, art, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, church abuse, shoes, children, race, justice, privilege, and the list goes on. But all of them with a the theme of love and hope and encouraging grace running through them all. Whether you find them again on YouTube, uh, where you can see us or just go back on your podcast app to see all the shows, please take a moment to pray for all of our guests who gave a lot to us and pray for those who support my ministry with standing stone, please. Won't you men and women who give their lives to serve others, many of whom struggle with their own relationship with church themselves, but they don't give up on giving now to him. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And that's worth a thought. This is John Bash for Church Hurts and Go and enjoy God today.
1: Well, that was worth a thought for sure. And brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts And Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial and finding movement of the divine. Our host, Dr. John Bash, is a shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving the ministry prematurely. Come visit us at churchhurtsand.org. Tell us your story while you're there. Until then, remember, Church Hurts isn't the end of the story. Now go into the end. Enjoy God today, won't you?